funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Welcome to the Silver Screen video with your host, Jonathan, because Jacob is MIA for this introduction. For the first time in a while, the Silver Screen video welcomes a guest. This week, we discuss Bruceploitation with Will Sloan, and that was a new term for Jacob and I to learn. So uh, we have a great conversation about Bruce Lee and kind of what all that encompasses. And uh, we'll host a couple of podcasts himself, so be sure to check those out. We do talk about those during this episode. He is also a movie critic, so be sure to follow him on Letterboxd, because if you are looking for a movie encyclopedia, Will is the place to go. Anyway, guys, we will make it short and sweet so we can get to the good stuff. Be sure to hit us up on Twitter. Let us know what you think about this episode. Be sure to follow Will on Twitter and uh, check him out on Letterboxd as well. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you next week at the Silver Screen video. Folks, our guest this week is a writer and podcaster whose work you can find in Harper's, Cinemascope, and Screenslate, among many other publications. Uh, he co-hosts the podcast The Important Cinema Club and Michael and Us. Please welcome to the show will sloan will how's it going thank you for having me how about that two podcasts huh that's kind of a lot yeah man it's uh i mean how do you find the time you're you're writing you're you're logging stuff on letterboxd you're doing two podcasts i mean <laughs> you're renaissance the, log- the logging stuff on letterboxd is really strenuous let me tell you <laughs> <laughs> well i i was actually um just to kind of by way of maybe introducing uh, you uh, to our audience, if they don't know who you are, I, I was telling you kind of off pod and uh, I guess I'll just repeat myself. Um, uh, it, I, I follow you in Letterboxd and of course, Twitter and, uh, you know, have discovered your writing and, and everything like that. But initially I discovered you on Letterboxd because you write really good reviews on there. And every time I like add something to my watch list, I haven't seen, or I just, just look up a movie to see, you know, if it's streaming anywhere or whatever, you've already seen it and reviewed it and, you know, given it a star rating. And I'm just in awe of it. I, I feel like you've seen everything. Um, wow. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, I think uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a dubious honor, isn't it? To have seen a lot of movies, but um, uh, I, 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 I assume uh, I'll just say thank you. Thank you for following. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you can you outline a little bit for our listeners kind of your because I would say the stuff that you uh, always seem to have seen, you know, before I get around to it is kind of I don't know. How would you describe it? Underappreciated, um, unconventional. Well, uh, I don't know. Yeah. What, are, what are some of your cinema predilections? I, I mean, I'm I'm interested um, in, in as broad a range of cinema as possible frankly i'm uh, mm. i'm interested in all sorts of things i mean i like to i like to keep a finger on the pulse of what's happening you know at the multiplex right now um you know i'm interested in uh uh i i mean on one of those two podcasts you mentioned the important cinema club 
you know, the mandate on that is we want to cast as wide a net as possible. You know, we want to talk about, you know, one weekend it might, one week it might be experimental film, one week it might be, you know, uh, porn, one week it might be Hallmark Christmas movies. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that all those things are uh, equal, but I am interested in the full range of things. And in terms of, you know, what you were saying about underappreciated cinema, I am very interested in this current moment as, you know, the medium ostensibly has become democratized with the rise of digital film. But really, like, we've seen this, like, consolidation of there are, like, uh, four or five streaming companies that sort of dictate what are the things that people watch. Um, I am interested in you know, the underbelly. I'm interested in things around that enormous media edifice. Yeah, I'm interested in odd people in strange communities who sort of create different sorts of cinema um, almost almost as a gesture of resistance. Um, so I hope that I hope that answers your question. No, definitely. It's um, and I think that the kind of topic we've we've got you on uh, to discuss today um, definitely fits into that, at least for me. Um, Cause today we're talking about uh, Bruce exploitation. Now me and Jonathan, funnily enough, we just recorded an episode about enter the dragon and we kind of talked about how we're both not really, well, not really Bruce Lee experts or even Kung Fu experts. It's kind of, almost like a blind spot for us uh, that we just haven't seen as much as we, we would have liked. So Bruce exploitation feels like another layer, you know, another inception layer deeper uh, than just being like regular, yeah. you know, great Kung Fu movies. Um, can you talk about Bruce exploitation a little bit, like kind of what it is and um, why you're drawn to it, or I guess whether you're drawn to it? I mean, you know, I am a Bruce Lee fan. Um, I've spent a lot of time over the years reading about him and watching his movies. But funnily enough, I think that I think my interest in Bruce exploitation movies sort of presaged my interest in Bruce Lee, because when I was younger, you know, in the early days of the Internet, um, when you know, you go on websites like badmovies.org or, um, you know, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the uh, outmoded cult movies websites of the early 2000s were like i would read about i'd find out movies like there was one called the clones of bruce lee i remember that was the first one i ever heard about and the plot of it was that after bruce lee died um some mad scientist created three clones of him and it starred bruce la dragon lee and uh bruce ty and bruce lie uh also so it had these four guys in it and i remember thinking who who would make that why would someone make that that's such a weird idea for a movie and then finding out like if you if you went to walmart in the 2000s all of these movies these bruce exploitation movies were uh they were assumed to be in the public domain so walmarts and gas stations and anywhere that had cheap dvds where they just bought huge you know tubs of dvds in bulk basically and sold them for four dollars to gullible consumers you know the the bargain bins would be full of these movies you know passed off as regular bruce lee movies and you know as like uh, an adolescent or a teenager who didn't have a lot of like spending money of course i would you know spend money on you know a four dollar bruce lie movie and i don't know 
why why was i interested in these movies i mean it's so endlessly fascinating to me it is still fascinating to me that you know bruce lee basically made four completed action movies before he died his legacy rests on four movies and the last of those enter the dragon was this massive international hit that made him the first crossover you know chinese movie star uh, and he's famous all over the world. And he died, you know, a month before it opened. He died before he could capitalize on that. And so great, so great was the impact that it spawned almost a decade of imitation movies, you know, unscrupulous producers from across Asia who would, you know, just get um, get impersonators who like, you know, there was uh, the best of them was a guy named Ho Chung Dao, who we'll talk about. He's in one of these movies. He was a Taiwanese gymnast who, you know, if you gave him the right haircut and you shot him from the right angle, uh, looked a little bit like Bruce Lee. So they called him Bruce Lai. And then there's, yeah, Bruce La, Dragon Lee, all these people who were put in these movies that were either about Bruce Lee or were sort of Bruce Lee imitation films. And they were just sold all over the world to undiscriminating audiences. Um, you know, maybe people, maybe some of the people who watched them were tricked into thinking they were Bruce Lee movies. Maybe other people were just like, ah, you know, it's kind of in the Bruce Lee style, so it's good enough. Um, just the fact that one movie star could could have such an impact in such a short amount of time that he spawned this entire subgenre of movies basically ripping him off um, is endlessly fascinating to me. It just tickles me. Uh, and there were dozens of movies like this, and uh, I love them all. Now, uh, I have to ask, we briefly discussed this when we covered Enter the Dragon. What is your opinion of the depiction of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Because... I already gave my two cents on that episode because uh, I'm a big Bruce Lee fan. Uh, what did you think? Did you have a problem with it? Do you think Tarantino kind of missed the mark on that? I feel like I could argue both sides of it because when I watched it, I was, well, first of all, I was kind of relieved and delighted on first glance that it was a depiction of Bruce Lee that didn't depict him as a superhero. You know, there's been a whole, um, Bruce Lee's family has done a very good job over the years of sort of like, turning him into a, a modern folk hero, turning him into like a god. Um, and I mean, in real life, you know, he was a human being. I think I think the depiction of him in that movie was probably pretty accurate. You know, he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder, um, you know, a little cocky, a little arrogant in the early days. Um, so I think at, at first I was I was kind of just just um, interested in seeing a depiction of him as a human being. Um, I've heard it argued that, you know, well, all of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it has a reactionary streak to it, right? Like there's an element of that movie that's kind of like resistant of the winds of change that were hitting Hollywood in the mid to late 60s. Um, Tarantino is sort of saying in that movie, we were we were too quick to leave behind the old guard. And, you know, if if that is a if what I've just said is a correct interpretation of that movie, I can see why people would be annoyed by the depiction of Bruce Lee in the movie. Like to to have this guy who was like, you know, what Bruce Lee represents is this triumph of, you know, uh, 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 basically an immigrant success story. You know, somebody who faced incredible opposition, somebody who faced incredible racism, uh, 
and nevertheless became a global superstar, you know, and became became a inspirational figure to, you know, underrepresented people from 42nd Street to Kowloon um, to have him sort of like be made fun of, to have him, you know, be thrown against the car by the uh, white American stuntman. I, I can I can see why people would that would rub people the wrong way. So um, I guess uh, I guess to answer your question, I'm undecided. I uh, I I wanted to like add to that because I I like your take on it, like arguing both ways. But something that is interesting to me is ever since Once Upon a Time came out, like I'm a big Tarantino fan, but ever since it came out, I'm learning that I'm more of a Tarantino movie fan than mm-hmm. I am a Tarantino individual fan because <laughs> yeah. it seems like all he wants to do is stir the pot. Like, especially now that he has his own podcast, like every other week he's bashing a classic and like super aggressive fashion. Oh, he man. refused to you. like back <laughs> off of the Bruce Lee take. So it's like, it's just really interesting to see, like, did you put that in there? Because because he's made it clear he's not a fan of like Enter the Dragon. He thinks it's a shitty Kung Fu movie. So I guess the reason it bothers me a little bit is because he seemed to be more antagonist antagonizing with it opposed to, oh, I want to show Bruce Lee in this cool 70s Hollywood movie. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think I think his art speaks better than he does. Like as a public figure, he's almost like the anti-Scorsese because like when Martin Scorsese talks about movies, he talks about them with this incredible generosity and curiosity. And Tarantino, who, you know, obviously has broad tastes, is obviously a smart guy. Yeah, there's just something there's something about the way he like, I don't know if you read his book recently, but like I had to stop reading it halfway through because I was just getting mad. Like every page will have like this like harsh dismissal, this flippant dismissal of some like, you know, classic movie. Like there'll be one page where he's just like, oh yeah, Jean-Luc Godard's made in the USA. It was a waste of celluloid or, um, you know, <laughs> Hitch- Hitch- Hitchcock's frenzy was garbage. And it's like, I, w- I was getting exhausted of just seeing one after another of these, these like tough harsh dismissals without any justification um so so yeah i mean i don't know i think in the context in the context of the movie uh, i think uh, well i i i could just end up repeating myself um i think the movie speaks better than than he does but i definitely hear your point and also i made it about a quarter of the way through the book and i was like i'm, I'm going to have to come back to this some other time because yeah I, well you know, i mean i, I mean do with it. with him and i feel the same way about the podcast like for for the first 20 minutes i'm like oh this is so much fun like this guy this great filmmaker is telling you all his movie opinions and he's so enthusiastic and he knows so much and then yeah after 20 minutes with him it's always just oh my god shut shut up holy shit <laughs> Well, you know, what's interesting about that, not to get off on a whole Tarantino tangent, but, you know, I'm going to invoke one of my uh, one of my heroes here, Harold Bloom, who has a, you know, he kind of has a great take on um, the artist. Basically, the artist must misinterpret uh, what has come before him. Right. You know, and he obviously Harold Bloom is dealing in the realm of literature. So, you know, he he's the, talking about you know, John Milton misunderstanding Shakespeare. And that is, that is a key part of, of John Milton's, you know, artistic achievement is the fact that he uh, misread uh, Hamlet or whatever, you know? And so I think, I think 
Tarantino's dismissal of some of that stuff and that knee jerk reaction is part of what makes him a really good artist and a really interesting artist because, uh, you know, I think that's a key part of the, you know, you have to, you have to have your, you have to have your, your, uh, what's the word, the things that you're, that you won't bend on, you know, uh, I think when you're an artist, you know, different, um, tropes or different, different things that you won't allow in your work or whatever, but as Tarantino transitions into this, uh, I guess, I guess film critic, you know, that he kind of sees himself as it's kind of the opposite of what a good film critic is. Yes. So it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it really is kind of like, if you're going to transition into a film critic, you, you, you really gotta, you can't just be spewing off hot takes, you know? Well, like, I mean, to take just one example, I mean, in his early days, he always used to claim to have been influenced by Jean-Luc Godard. And mm. I don't, I frankly don't think he knows the first thing about Godard. I think the only, yep. like, I think at one point he said, there was an interview where he said, ah, I was really just more influenced by Pauline Kael's reviews of Godard than I was, than I was <laughs> Godard. And like in his movies, that's great because the result of that is you get that scene in Pulp Fiction where, you know, John Travolta and Uma Thurman are dancing. Right. You know, that's straight out of Band of Outsiders. And it's, and it's fantastic. He's taken a couple of things from Godard and put, in, put it in a blender with a bunch of other things and made something new and beautiful. Um, but do I do I want to sit around and hear him actually say his opinions about Godard? No. But and, one thing, one last thing I'll just say in sort of in defense of Tarantino, because the whole Bruce Lee thing has like, you know, been such a subject of con- of conversation and controversy is I do think he deserves credit for being like, I, I mean, maybe somebody can give me another name, but I actually think he's been the most important figure in the Western hemisphere in terms of both popularizing and giving critical legitimacy to Asian genre cinema. I mean, Mm. um, I don't think we would be talking about, uh, you know, Shaw brothers movies and the way we do now without him. I don't think John Woo would have the same, you know, cultural cachet without his advocacy. Um, So many of the aesthetics in those movies, you know, before kill bill, I feel like in polite critical circles, sort of Shaw Brothers kung fu movies were regarded just as trash. And um, now it would not be surprising to see those movies on like the Criterion channel. And I think, I do think that's a direct result of him. And, you know, he, he um, in his way brought over like, you know, he distributed Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express and Takeshi Kitano's Sonatine. Um, he was an early advocate of Bong Joon-ho. So, you know, I don't know, the world, maybe all these things would have come over and been embraced in some way, in some form without him. But like his his influence, his influence in spreading the word of Asian cinema really, I don't think can be overstated. Yeah, that that is definitely I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm, I, I love Tarantino and that is a huge mm. positive aspect of what he has done in cinema uh, but real quick before we, cause we can get back to Bruce exploitation. I just, I, I wanted to touch on the Bruce Lee thing cause it's kind of hard to avoid and I wanted to get your take on it, but to go back to what Jacob said originally about, that's what makes him a good artist. I, I definitely see that. And I, and I like that take, but the issue is sometimes he will say something like, like the kid at the Thanksgiving table that he <laughs> knows is outrageous. And then he will look around the room to see who's going to react. 
Yes. And it really drives me insane. But if I can get past that, I appreciate the kind of radical, rebellious takes that he will have sometimes that is like, like you said, will kind of like the antithesis, so to speak, of like Scorsese, who is my favorite filmmaker. So you kind of get different takes on film and certain genres in film from like just those two genius movie brains. Totally. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, just to put a, just to put a button on it, it, it does kind of suck that, you know, that, that uh, um, we, we did get a kind of a major pop cultural, uh, representation of Bruce Lee and that was it, you know, but, but I guess he got enough shit for it. So, you know, so yeah. So getting back to, to Bruce exploitation, um, I was going to ask you, um, what was, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, what was the intention here? And I guess, was it successful? Was it to actually fool people uh, in this, or maybe not fool people, but was it, you know how there's those movies that'll be like uh, the Revengers, you know, and it's like people who <laughs> look like, you know, Captain America or whatever, you know, like, was it that kind of thing of like, yeah, these people will know the difference or was it an actual like, no, people love Bruce Lee and we want to give we want to give them more Bruce Lee focused content, uh, regardless of whether or not they're actually fooled or and I guess was it successful? I mean, clearly there was a lot of these movies. I'm assuming it was financially uh viable for these producers, right? Yeah, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Bruce Exploitation mm. came in a few different waves. Uh the first uh the guy who stars in the first movie we're going to talk about, Bruce Lai, also known as Ho Chung Dao, uh, he was the first of the big Bruce Floytation stars. And between 1974 and 1976, he starred in no less than five biopics of Bruce Lee. And um, most of those are kind of disproportionately focused on the circumstances of Bruce Lee's death and some of the kind of uh, some of the personal scandals in his life that were discussed in the Hong Kong press after he died. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the early ones, including films by other people, were very much focused on Bruce Lee's life, um, Bruce Lee's death, um, and and weren't necessarily weren't necessarily trying to trick you into thinking they were a Bruce Lee movie. Like they were mm. sort of movies in the key of Bruce Lee, although there were some. You know, uh, Bruce Lai, one of his early films is called Goodbye, Bruce Lee, His Last Game of Death, which was a transparent attempt to trick viewers into thinking this is Bruce Lee's unfinished movie Game of Death that we've finished. Um, mm. And it was sold all over the world basically as that. And it had Bruce Lee's face on the poster. Um, so there were de- even in those early days, there were definitely movies meant to meant to trick people. Um, as the genre went on, um, and the further and further away you got from Bruce Lee's death, like the less the less money the movies made, you know, like Bruce mm. Lee, the man, the myth was probably the most financially successful of all of them. It came out in 1976, three years after Bruce Lee died. Uh, so a lot of people made a lot of money on the Bruce Boytation movies in the early days. Um, and then as he got further and further along, and people like Bruce La and Dragon Lee joined in, you know, like the market got saturated as well as 
you know, there were other trends, you know, Jackie Chan began to emerge, uh, Sammo Hung, people like that in the late seventies, uh, movies like zoo warriors on the magic mountain, you know, a whole new generation of Hong Kong action movies. Um, and when Bruce Le, you know, was at the peak of his career, sort of 79 to 83 around there, like those movies were, you know, sold really cheaply all over the world for kind of like lowest common denominator consumption basically as fraudulent Bruce Lee movies. Mm. One of my favorite Bruce Lapp movies is called uh, Enter the Game of Death, which was released in the United <laughs> States as as King of Kung Fu. And if you look up the trailer of that movie, you know, it, it shows Bruce Lapp and the narrator goes, he's back. Just when you thought you've seen all of his movies, he comes with his biggest one yet. And the, tra- and the trailer goes <laughs> on and the narrator is like, if you liked Enter the Dragon, The Chinese Connection, and Return of the Dragon, you'll love uh, King of Kung Fu. And, you know, again, transparent, <laughs> like like the whole he's back marketing of that movie. You know, like if you uh, if you read the fine print, of course, it would say, oh, we're talking about Bruce La. You know, who did who <laughs> did you think we were talking about? Um <laughs> Uh, and and I should maybe also say, just in setting this up, that there was another wave of another kind or flavor of Bruce exploitation movie, which were movies that were trying to trying to do anything with any scrap of footage of Bruce Lee available. So there was one called The Real Bruce Lee that came out in 76 and it was marketed as, you know, Bruce Lee's first movie uh, has been found in the Chinese archives. We positively guarantee the real Bruce Lee. And when you saw the movie, um, the first 20 minutes of it are clips of movies that Bruce Lee was in as a child actor, like black and white Cantonese melodramas that were mm. never meant to be seen, have no Kung Fu, were never meant to be seen anywhere except Hong Kong in the 1950s. And then the rest of the movie is just like uh, they tacked a, a Dragon Lee movie at the end of it. Um, or then there's one of the first Bruce Boitation movies was called Fury of the Dragon. And that was a couple of American impresarios who went to 20th Century Fox and said, hey, can we buy the movie rights to the Green Hornet television show that Bruce Lee was on? We want to take a couple of episodes and stitch them together and turn them into a movie. And 20th Century Fox said, that's a terrible idea. Uh, take it. We'll sell it to you for peanuts. And that movie like made millions of dollars, Fury of the Dragon, because people were desperate for any... In 1974, 1975 the fans were willing to watch anything with Bruce Lee in it. Um, And one of the movies I think we're going to talk about today, Fist of Fear, Touch of Death is kind of in that lineage because it also has like some, some actual Bruce Lee footage in it. Um, But, and, and so like they could legal, they were legally allowed to say that Bruce Lee is in this movie, but like the footage, I think you'll agree is warped and, um, you know, horrible, horrible things are being done to it to turn it into some monstrosity. Well, let, let's jump into these two movies. Um, these, these are the two that you, that you recommended. Um, we'll start off with um, uh, the first one from 1976, Bruce Lee, uh, The Man, The Myth, which is basically uh, a bio, kind of a biopic of Bruce Lee, right? Um mm-hmm. Yeah, talk talk about this a little movie sketchy. What... I, I I would say you know maybe not the most textured uh, picture <laughs> sure. of his life, but yes, <laughs> it does it does kind of hit the beats. 
it uh it well it, i guess it's posing as a biopic uh, <laughs> yeah bruce lee <laughs> um yeah well, this what, was uh, well this was the fifth and final of those biopics that bruce Lai, also known as ho chung dao appeared in between 1974 and 1976 it's the best of them it's the most expensive of them it was shot on three continents you know uh, cheaply but it was shot on three continents you know there's there's a scene at the roman coliseum there's stuff in san francisco and los angeles and seattle there's there are scenes shot in thailand um so and and also the so sorry i'm i i, I get so worked up when i talk about these movies because i love them so much but the uh <laughs> no please the, go for it uh, uh, Bruce Lai's first movie was called Bruce Lee, A Dragon Story, and it's from 1974. And it's, you know, one of the worst movies ever made. It's just terrible. And it's a really cheap biopic of, of Bruce Lee that really focuses on the affair that Bruce Lee was having right before he died. And, um, um, you know, quite salacious, not a lot of kung fu in it. So some of those biopics that he was in were really focused on you know stuff that was stuff that was being talked about in the Hong Kong tabloids at the time, um, and and really focused on the shock of his death. By the time this movie, Bruce Lee: The Man, The Myth, came out, the people who made it had figured out they'd figured out how to sell this story to the world, which was the world doesn't care about like the salacious details of Bruce Lee's life. Uh, it's not interested in seeing their idol punctured. Uh, this is a this is a movie that's going to show you Bruce Lee's life exactly how you wish it was, which is he goes around the world and he kicks ass after ass after ass, and he's the coolest guy ever, and and he anyone who challenges him gets defeated, and that's basically what this movie is. It's a Bruce Lee fan film, um, and it was a hit all over the world. It was the only Bruce Lee movie to be a substantial hit in Hong Kong, um, and you know. It, it played everywhere and it played on tv and uh was was widely beloved among those who saw it well let me ask you i, I want to ask you to compare this to um uh to to kind of more uh canonical uh kung fu movies for, well you know maybe like enter the dragon or or something not bruce lee affiliated like the 36 chamber of shaolin you know, movies like that is, is in your, from your perspective, is this movie kind of um, on the same level and work works well as uh, just a regular Kung Fu movie, or is this kind of in a different category and your, your, your kind of appreciation for it is, is kind of different, you know? Um, does that make <laughs> yeah, sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely know what you mean. I would not like rank this among the great Kung Fu movies. Um, okay. It was an it was an independent production, you know. It may have been pretty high budget for a Bruce Lai movie, but it was still you know a little low budget. Uh, you know, a movie like the Thirty Six Chambers of Shaolin or the or the um, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter or those great mm. Shaw Brothers movies, you know, they they came out of the Shaw Brothers, which was like the number one studio in Hong Kong. It had the most money, had the most resources. Um had a lot of time to like, you know, create really well choreographed action scenes, had the best sort of minds of, of the genre working on it. And this movie, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fast and cheap production. It's a sort of mid-level production. 
um i mean a lot of a lot there were a lot of great kind of like independent um hong kong action movies um but this one i mean i mean it's it it's silly i mean i think it i think it is exactly what it appears to be it's a kind of it's a kind of b movie uh one more thing i'll just say about it in terms of compared to other movies um, watching it this time, I was struck by how different it is from a regular Bruce Lee movie. I mean, Bruce Lee had a particular philosophy of the martial arts. He thought you you should dispatch with your enemies with as few moves as possible. And uh, that led to, you know, conflicts with directors that he worked with. When he arrived on the set of The Big Boss, you know, he didn't want to do long, drawn-out acrobatic fight scenes. First of all, because he didn't have that kind of acrobatic training. So many of the Hong Kong stuntmen had been trained in Cantonese opera. They'd learned to do flips and, you know, incredible feats of physical agility. Bruce Lee was a street fighter. And in creating his own martial arts style, Jeet Kune Do, he wanted to do away with what he called rehearsed routines. He wanted to encourage people in a combat situation to do a, do whatever it took to win the fight and use as few moves as possible. Now he mm. would he would enter into conflict with his directors because they would say, "Well, well, what do you mean you want to take these henchmen out with one or two blows? Like that's not interesting to watch." And Bruce Lee would basically say, "Send me more henchmen. Like if <laughs> I spend 5 minutes fighting this henchman, I'm not that good, am I? I'd have to spend like 10 hours fighting the big boss at the end." And you know, that works for Bruce Lee, because in addition to everything, in addition to his martial arts ability, he's an incredible showman. He's a great screen presence. You know, all the stuff he does with his body and his voice and his face, you know, you can't take your eyes off him. Um, but it doesn't necessarily work for other people who aren't a once in a generation screen presence. And I think in Bruce Lee, the man, the myth, just compared to actual Bruce Lee movies, I don't think it really follows like this is a movie where Bruce Lee is getting into fight after fight after fight in this very repetitive way. And all the fights are basically the same and they're all like really drawn out. Um, And I think if the actual Bruce Lee saw this movie, he would say, why does it take you so long to fight all of these henchmen? Mm, Um, Okay. But uh, yeah. Also, also just getting back to your question of like whether or not I think it's a good movie. Like I, I, I find this movie amusing and I find in particular all the stuff between the fight scenes, any scene where two characters talk in this movie, any scene where they're trying to convince you that like it's it's like set in, you know, set in where it claims to be set, I find very funny. So, you know, I think Bruce Lai went on to make movies that I would actually call good. I would not necessarily call this movie good, but I find it likable and amusing. And, you know, as, as a Bruce Lee fan, uh, it, it, it's got a lot that makes me laugh. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I it helps to put kind of in context because I've seen a few, you know, of the canonical, you know, Kung Fu movies. But, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it's just kind of something that has always been a blind spot for me. So I was like, I was watching it and I was like. Uh, like now now how, how but, seriously are you supposed to take this yeah exactly right <laughs> that that's kind of the perspective that i was like kind of struggling with a little bit because but now that i've got that context i'm like like see i'm an old hollywood guy like that that's my wheelhouse huh. those are my favorite kind of movies and so now i'm like oh it's a poverty row film noir like now <laughs> you know like now i yeah, I, I can exactly. kind of understand it um I, I i thought um i, I thought which 
the 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 fact that it's that it's pronounced Bruce Lee is hilarious to me because the poster. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're on Forty Second Street in 1976, you'd be like, oh, Bruce Lee. Yeah, they spelled it different. You know, like <laughs> yeah. you, you might be you might be fooled. Uh, but I, man, I thought the guy did a great Bruce Lee impression. Honestly, like I agree. I, I mean, I, I, the, yeah. the smile, the nose thumbing. He's got all the all the gestures. Um, and, you know, in real life, he actually hated being a Bruce Lee impersonator. I mean, he wow. was in these early movies because like he got a shot at stardom right you know a producer Mm. comes to him and says "Uh, listen if you imitate bruce lee for a little while and you make your name bruce lie uh you'll you'll be catapulted to global fame and then you'll be able to be ho chung dao in movies and that never fully happened um although as his career went on like in the late 70s he did you know, he did move a little bit away from the Bruce Boitation genre and start and started to make movies that weren't so kind of like, you know, rigidly indebted to Lee and, you know, ended up making a few movies after this that were pretty good. Yeah, that sounds like a monkey's paw uh, promise there of like, no, 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 mm-hmm. you'll get to be yourself after you become famous for being an impersonator, you know. Yeah. Um, John, what did you think about this movie? What? uh um yeah, I don't know. Did you think? Do you think our boy Bruce Lee? You think he did a uh, pretty good job? Yeah, I mean, I I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I, I think that that situation telling him to pretend to be someone else for as long as it takes to get famous, then go back to being yourself, is hilarious. Like, who the fuck would believe that shit? Like, <laughs> like it's like talk about being typecast. It's like people complain today about, oh no, I'm an actor who gets typecast as the bad guy or the heavy and everything. It's like no, like. I, I was basically Bruce Lee for three quarters of my career. And now I want to be the real me. Like yeah. that's, uh, that's uh, hilarious. But no, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. I thought that, uh, I thought he did a great, he was the best thing about the movie. Like hands down. I thought he knocked it out of the park. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, I've, I've watched a lot of over the years. Like I remember the TV movie they did when I was a kid. Uh, I've watched a lot of his like biopics because they're like, like Will already said, there was a lot of them. So mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. Well, and also, I mean, it's interesting to see the sort of Bruce Lee myth codified three years after his death, because as Mm. I said, there were those biopics from before that were so much focused on like the scandalous personal life. Whereas this one, um, yeah, sort of lays down the groundwork of, of the Bruce Lee that Tarantino would try to puncture like 45 years later. Um, it's the Bruce Lee who was an immigrant success story who um, transcended or, or fought against uh, the racism of Hollywood studios. It's the Bruce Lee who was kind of a maverick martial arts teacher who, um, you know, both both stood up for the the pride and dignity of the Chinese people and Chinese Kung Fu against their colonial oppressors or racist people from abroad, but who also like would do things like teach foreigners, you know, teach black people, teach, teach other people who weren't supposed to have that knowledge of Kung Fu. Um, um, So, and, and also like some of the like tall tales, like the myths, I mean, I'm sure some of this is true, but you always hear stories of like on the set of his movies, you know, there'd be, there'd be extras or stuntmen who'd be like, ah, Bruce Lee, he's not so good. I'm going to challenge him to a match. And, you know, Bruce Lee would take him out with one or two blows, you know, like Bruce Lee is one of those like figures. He's become like, 
I don't know, Samson or some like mythical mm. figure who has like stories that have ascended to the realm of myth. And this movie, you can you can see like you can see that starting to happen. You can see the the myth starting to harden. Well, that that's how I viewed him when I was growing up and I was introduced to him via like biopics first. And then uh, obviously moving on to his, to his movies and his show. Um, that's how I was in, that, that's how I viewed him as a mm. kid. It was like, he is like, at first it was like, like you already pointed out, it's more of, he's a superhero kind of, but then it's like, when you realize what he did, you begin to appreciate him for like just pure athleticism and commitment to the craft in general. And I think that's really, for me, where my appreciation is now, like viewing him through the eyes of an adult instead of a child. It's like, no, as a, as just a pure athlete and, and Kung Fu practitioner, he is just an impressive human being overall. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he is amazing when you see him on the screen, you know, that, that 10 minutes in Enter the Dragon, basically, where he's like in the underground lair fighting all those henchmen. And really yeah. that 10 minutes of footage is more than anything what his legacy rests on. Um, you know, it, 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 it's rare to get, it's rare to get somebody who is like such a perfect confluence of like once in a generation athlete and once in a generation screen presence, you know, most, most athletes aren't great screen presences. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's a good point. But also because his body of work is so small, like it is for four movies and the Green Hornet, basically, so much of his legend also rests on the stories of his life. Like, um, I'm sure I'm sure you heard that story, um, you know, supposedly uh, when he was a, a kung fu teacher in San Francisco. You know, it's one of the famous stories about his life that like the uh, the other the other kung fu instructors came to him and said, ah, you're, you're teaching foreigners the secrets of Chinese kung fu and you have to stop and we're going to dispatch a fighter. And if you, you you fight this guy in a in a match and if he wins, you stop teaching. But if you win, you get to keep teaching. Now, uh, they, they had this fight, you know, in the 1960s, and Bruce Lee beats the guy in like three minutes. And then five minutes later, his wife finds him like behind the Kung Fu school with his head in his hands. And she says, Bruce, what's wrong? And he says, the fight lasted too long. And this <laughs> led him to create. <laughs> now, like that's that's a story that's been repeated over and over again. It's in, you know, Dragon the Bruce Lee story. It's in it's in any sort of depiction of him. And like when you when you start to think about it for a second, it's ridiculous. Like what jurisdiction do these other like kung fu teachers have to like tell someone to run their business? Like how would they enforce <laughs> whether or not he's allowed to run a business? But like whatever. It's a it's a great story and there's some like there's some sort of level of truth there. And that, and, and in that sense, it's like a, a perfect myth. And there are very, there are very few people in like modern times who, who have been able to generate myths like that. Uh, so he's, he's a very, he's a very special, like he's a very special historical figure for that and many other reasons. Yeah. I, um, you know, it's weird. I, I, I didn't watch, you know, Kung Fu movies as a kid. I grew up in a strict household and, that was a no go. Um, but I remember being a kid in the nineties and being like, this is going to sound like such an insane, like thing to remember. Or, but like, I remember being like in the t-shirt section of like Walmart and there being like, you know, a t-shirt of like Jordan 
you know, like, like dunking or something, you know, like mm-hmm. this kind of like off brand, you know, and be like Michael Jordan, you know, Chicago Bulls, whatever. And then like, you know, there would also be like a, a t-shirt of Bruce Lee and it would just be like the, the, you know, the man, the myth, the legend, Bruce Lee, maybe there would be like a quote of his on the back or something. And I remember being like younger and just being like, who the hell is this guy? You know? Yeah. Um, so he was very much almost like a cartoon character for me growing up, you know, cause I would see, or, or posters, you know, you'd see posters up in people, you know, with like an inspirational quote, you know, be water or whatever, you know, totally. Um, but yeah, that's, um, let me ask you this. Is there a longer cut of this movie that is in widescreen? Uh, because I read that on somebody's, uh, letterboxd review. And then I went back and looked and I was like, God, it does seem like it's been kind of, maybe not pan and scanned, but I don't know. Do you know anything about this? Yeah. So there are, I mean, there are at least two versions in circulation. The one that I watched was the Hong Kong cut, which is called, and by the way, I've seen, I've seen both cuts of the movie, but the one I watched was called um, Bruce Lee, true story. And it has like maybe an extra three or four minutes of footage, nothing particularly major. There are a few dialogue scenes that are extended from the American cut. Um, the one the one major thing that it has that the American cut doesn't have, I think, it's been a while since I've seen the American cut, but you know at the end of the movie, after Bruce Lee dies and the narrator says, uh, there, there are various theories about, you know, unsubstantiated theories of uh, maybe Bruce, uh, of how Bruce Lee actually died. And here are a few of them. Now, right. I, I I believe in the American cut, you see the first theory, which is, you know, Bruce Lee gets attacked by some knife wielding street thugs and he dies that way. Um, and then there's also uh, a fortune teller tells him, you know, you're on borrowed time, Bruce. Uh, you will die in your 30s if you don't go into hiding. You have to go into hiding for 10 years. And, you know, the movie ends with many believe that Bruce Lee is in hiding and will reemerge in 1983 on the 10th anniversary of his death. Um, but in the Hong Kong cut, there's an additional there's an additional scene between those two, uh, which was suggest which is suggesting, and this was a very popular tabloid rumor at the time, that because Bruce Lee died in the apartment of his mistress, uh, that he died mid coitus. So you see him, oh. you see Bruce Lee having sex with his mistress, and. Uh, uh, you know, just at the moment of climax, he grabs his head and then he, then he, then he drops dead. Now I, <laughs> I, 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 it's embarrassing to even say this, but like, I swear this was the, the Hong Kong tabloids were like outdoing each other to come up with, you know, salacious stories of Bruce Lee's death. And because he died in his mistress's apartment, uh, it was a popular rumor that he died while having sex with her. And so that's in the Hong Kong cut, but I, I believe in the American cut, you know, uh, cooler heads prevails and they, they cut that bit. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the, the Hong Kong cut, is it widescreen? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. All right. Cause that was driving me a little crazy. Cause I was like, I don't know. Like it was like an itch that I can't scratch. Like knowing that I watched this movie that like with the edges cut off basically, you know, I mean one, one thing I'll say, and yes, the widescreen is always preferable. This movie doesn't really look very good in any version. You see it, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> But 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 yeah, it is uh, it, it is nice to see the whole picture. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so not much of an improvement, but you know. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's segue into this next movie, um, 
which is I, I, I gotta be honest, I enjoyed it a lot more because it was so it was so insane. Yes. You know, like it was it, <laughs> like uh, that's why I asked you about like am I like the first movie, like am I supposed to take it? Is this supposed to be a great kung fu movie or is this just an interesting whereas the second one I was like, Oh no, I know what territory I'm in here. This is <laughs> this is a fever dream that I'm inside right now. Um Oh yeah. And this is nineteen eighties uh Fist of Fear. Uh, touch of death which is basically a, a kind of well not mockumentary but a fake documentary about bruce lee's life um and consists of mainly three things footage well four things footage from bruce lee's movies right uh footage yeah. from another random kung fu movie that doesn't have fuck all to do with anything. <laughs> <laughs> um f- footage that's filmed at a martial arts expo in Madison Square Garden and then of course some random footage with the actual actors and and doing actual dialogue. Um Man, I don't I don't even know where to start with this movie. Um well, I can give a little context for this. This movie it, was it was a the brainchild of a guy named Terry Levine, who ran a company called Aquarius Releasing. Aquarius Releasing was based in Times Square. It was a grindhouse distribution company. It released, you know, all sorts of sort of uh, grindhouse movies of the 1970s. Uh, Lucio Fulci's The Beyond was one that they released. Uh, can cannibal ferox you know dr butcher md was another of theirs uh, but they also released a lot oh they were also the first company to distribute deep throat um and and then after about six months when the money started rolling in the the mob took it back and got a better deal for themselves but they were also one of the key distributors of asian martial arts movies in the united states and in particular they released a lot of bruce Boytation movies uh, they released Goodbye Bruce Lee, his last game of death, for instance. Um, there was one that they released. They bought this Korean movie that had nothing to do with Bruce Lee. And they added a scene at the beginning of it where Bruce Lee rises from his grave. And they released it oh, as Bruce. Shit. They released it as Bruce Lee <laughs> fights back from the grave. Um, oh, and my again, God. Just that opening scene has nothing. The rest of the movie has nothing to do with Bruce Lee at all. Um, and then when this when this movie came along, Terry Levine uh, apparently acquired, you know, this two hour Cantonese melodrama that Bruce Lee made when he was a teenager called The Thunderstorm. And he invited some of the people that he worked with to watch this footage and see if they could do anything with it. And they looked at it and they said, well, well, well he's in it, but he's not he's not fighting. It's in black and white. What do we do with this? And then Terry Levine also had this like samurai movie uh you know the, he, he had a lot of different footage that he didn't know what to do with and so this 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 director matthew mallinson who worked at a post-production company called august films that you know for example they shot that footage of bruce lee rising from the grave you know they shot a lot of they shot a lot of footage that would be spliced into movies for american release um, Matthew Mallinson, who was, you know, in his 20s at the time, you know, just a young, hungry guy in New York, was uh, tasked with, you know, making something out of this footage. And uh, Terry Levine had, you know, various figures of note that he was in contact with or that owed him a favor or that, you know, he could afford a day or two of shooting with. So 
uh, one of the key figures in this movie is Aaron Banks, who is known as Mr. Karate in New York. He would have these big martial arts expos at Madison Square Garden. And then there was Fred Williamson, who was one of the big black exploitation stars. Well, he was going to be in New York for a couple of days, I guess, because he was going to this martial arts expo. So Terry Levine is like, hey, can can you shoot two days on this this fake Bruce Lee movie that I'm making? Sure. And then there are various other martial artists who were at that expo, like like Bill Louie and Ron Van Cleef. Ron Van Cleef wasn't at the expo, but like he was a sort of minor martial arts star at the time. And, um, you know, the, the centerpiece of the film is this footage from The Thunderstorm, that movie that Bruce Lee was in as a teenager, where uh, Matthew Mallinson and his team dubbed the dialogue, you know, what's up Tiger Lily style to <laughs> to to make it like a biopic of, you know, Bruce Lee, the early years. And uh, the stuff from the Samurai movie is they're like, they're like, well, this will be flashbacks to Bruce Lee's uh, grandfather, who's China's greatest samurai warlord. And, you know, you think about that for a sec and you think, well, samurai are actually Japanese. They're not Chinese. And, you know, throughout the movie, they, they talk about, you know, Bruce Lee is, you know, he's, he's doing so much karate. He's doing so much karate practice. Well, if you know anything, you know that he didn't do karate. Karate was a Japanese art form. He did Kung Fu and Wing Chun which were Chinese. And those are the kind of like, that's just the the tip of the iceberg in terms of what this movie doesn't get right about Bruce Lee's life. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I love this movie. This is, you know, just, uh, it, 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 it's nuts. And it's the, the first time I saw this when I was like a teenager, you know, it, it, I felt it just put like a cigarette burn on my brain that some, <laughs> somebody would make this. And like, how, how was this allowed? Like, how did the audiences watching this movie not revolt? Uh, so, so yeah, yeah, I love it. The interesting thing about not, I mean, the movie in and of itself clearly is very interesting, but it's not even like cultural insensitivity at that point. It's like the facts are just wrong. Like, yeah. You're not, it's not like you're, oh, it's the seventies and we didn't treat Asians very well. It's like, no, everything you're saying about <laughs> what he did was incorrect. Like, it's just really funny to see. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, that, that was, a, I just wanted to say that because that was a funny thing you brought up. Totally. And like the, the cognitive dissonance of, you know, you're used to watching something on TV and if there's an announcer guy who's speaking into a microphone, speaking to the camera with announcer guy voice, and he's got announcer guy gravitas, you know, there's a, there's a kind of implicit contract in place that the, the facts he's saying to you are going to basically be true. And, <laughs> okay. and like pretty much they're going to be true to the best, to the best of his ability. And yeah, the, the fact that the fact that this movie just breaks that contract in the first two minutes and has no interest, uh, but but and yet continues with the ruse of having an announcer guy. Um, it's, yeah, it's 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 that cognitive dissonance is just is just so much to deal with. Yeah, it's like a it, it's it's almost like a like a kid doing a book report, but he hasn't read the book. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, and it has that kind of that level, but 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 on a grand scale, because I mean, this is a movie that, yeah that yeah you can that you can pay to see if you want it's to you know in theaters like right. audiences want to see this movie <laughs> it's <laughs> it it kind of it kind of breaks your brain like thinking about this as and it you know it's also um 
it's also stock footage the movie like it's just yeah. when you think about it it's just essentially a movie that's full of stock footage and you're just like you feel <laughs> like i don't i don't even mean this in a bad way but you just feel like you've been absolutely fucking hoodwinked when, <laughs> yeah. when you're watching this thing you're like oh man they got me on this one you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and the fact but, that it like haunt, haunted the dvd dollar bins like all through the 2000s and is now like haunts wherever you know it's probably on tubi right now it just haunts like wherever cheap kung fu movies are like this movie is hoodwinking people every day like <laughs> this movie has never stopped hoodwinking people and like what a, what a thing to put into the world it really is it's a practical joke as a yeah. movie and also like it's it's not just that but it, it's it's like it revels in misinformation it's like we don't care about anything that we're saying we're just right. going to tell you a bunch of stuff. Yeah, you know what karate is. Yeah, it doesn't matter what country it's from. It's right. Like karate, kung fu, it's all the same. Like samurai, who gives a shit about their origin? Like, yeah, Bruce Lee yeah. was a samurai who practiced karate. Like, <laughs> yeah, 100%. And like, I had the great pleasure once of talking to the director of this film, Matthew Mallinson. Um, oh, shit. You know, I, oh, that's I, I, awesome. Yeah, I called him up um, be, because, you know, and I interviewed him because I was just so like, I just, you know, for, for years I had this movie in my head and I just needed to know, like, what, what were they thinking? And, you know, I, I found him to be like, you know, quite gracious and humble and good humored about it. And basically his, his take on it was like, yeah, you know, we just had to turn around a movie in like, you know, two weeks or whatever it was like, you know, it, it just every day was like, every day was a struggle to like get it done. And so there was just kind of like, and, you know, he was he was quite gracious about being like, oh, yeah, people over the years have have talked about how, like, you know, it was a, a samurai or Japanese. They're not Chinese. And like, yeah, they're they're right. That was a, a pretty bad thing to put in a movie. Um, but the sense the sense that I get from him is like, you know, it was a bunch of kids basically making this movie and like they were having fun. But then they were also just like under a lot of stress to deliver something very quickly with whatever elements had been given to them, whether it was a day with Fred Williamson or a day with Bill Louie or this like fucking Bruce Lee teenage movie that they had to do something, anything with. And this is what resulted. I mean, you think that they would have like, I don't know, picked up the Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedia or whatever was available at the time and just like read the entry on Bruce Lee, but it seems they didn't have time to do that. <laughs> Well, what's 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 funny, and I think what I like a lot about it is the fact that, like, you know, you kind of have this built-in uh, r radar or this built-in expectation of like what a bad movie is, you know, like mm -hmm. what a low-budget movie is. And I think the maybe the ur text for the for the low-budget movies like Plan Nine from Outer Space, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, oh look how cheap it is or whatever. And it's like, no, there's a level beneath that because like. <laughs> You, you expect there to at least be like, you know, 90 minutes, you know, of footage that has been filmed of people talking or, or interacting in some way. And this movie is like, nope, you're going to get about 12 minutes of that. And, you're gonna get, you know, and you're getting another hour of just other movies. You know? Well, you're right to call it a fever dream because it it's often defying your expectation yeah of, of what a movie is supposed to be what a movie is supposed to look like i mean right. it starts you know the host of the film is adolf caesar 
What a great name, by the way. Adolf Caesar, <laughs> who, who was a pretty distinguished actor, actually. He was Oscar nominated a couple of years after this. And, you know, he narrated all the trailers for Aquarius releasing films because he had such a great voice. But he appears in the movie as himself, Adolf Caesar, and he's like a, a TV correspondent or something. That's the gimmick. And, you know, he's speaking directly to the camera. He's at this Madison Square Garden martial arts tournament um, that is is supposedly going to determine Bruce Lee's successor. That's the gimmick of this tournament. Which, which what does that even mean? First of all, you that's, know? A, that's a great question. Yeah, <laughs> how do you determine that? Right. And, and and like when you when you look at when they show you footage of people on stage, none of them are doing anything that looks like Bruce Lee. Like <laughs> right. so, like they're they're boxing. They have <laughs> boxing gloves on. Like they're doing board breaking uh... shit. You know, just nothing that looks like what he did. Um, but nevertheless, you are looking at an actual tournament. You're looking at what looks like documentary footage. Um, and so, like, you know, like, you're just sitting there thinking, like, why is this Why is this movie that is clearly a movie being TV right now? Why is it showing me, like, <laughs> stuff that I would see on TV? And then, the movie like, is being TV. Yeah, yeah. And, like, why are there now flashback sequences in this documentary where, like, it's flashing back to you know, the day before with Fred Williamson in his hotel room, like doing this like little, little scripted sketch. Um, you know, why is, uh, or, or I mean, my, my real favorite part of the movie, any of any scene where they take footage of the adult Bruce Lee and like make it look like it's an interview with him. Like <laughs> there's this one bit, this is one bit where Adolf Caesar is saying like, as many of you know, I was the first to spot Bruce Lee's talent. Uh, and, and it cuts to an interview that he supposedly did where it's just like the two of them, not even in the same room. And it keeps cutting back to Bruce Lee, like with his voice dub saying, the, saying this ridiculous shit. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, like one, one, every scene, it feels like a contradiction in the style of the previous scene. And altogether, it feels like a contradiction of like what, what a movie is supposed to look like. Right. It's when the footage of the samurai uh, movie started, the kind of unrelated movie that just starts playing in the middle of it. That's when I was like, oh, we're flying high now. Like we're (laughs) we're on a different plane yet. Stretch that running time. Just just (laughs) stretch it. You know, one samurai scene after another. Right. Right. It's yeah, it's wild. Um, And yeah, it's funny. It'd be like if you walked into a documentary and like. Morgan Freeman was like 500 years ago, the universe hatched out of a turtle and like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. there's like no irony to it whatsoever. No tongue in cheek, just like, mm-hmm. yeah, just as deadly serious as it could be. Um, but uh, everybody should watch this movie. I don't know what, to, you know, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> if you're our listener out there and you have not seen this movie, which you almost definitely have not. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Watch it. It's uh it's wild. Um, didn't didn't you uh, feel a little moved? You know, didn't a little tear roll down your cheek when when uh, Adolf Caesar delivers his final thought at the end of the film? Like you know, like like Jerry Springer coming out doing his final thought. It's like it's the empty Madison Square Garden, and we got Adolf Caesar there. Like, what have we learned here today? Which is a great question after after that movie. <laughs> and he's like, Not- like you know, at the, at this at this tournament, people have been trying to determine who is bruce lee's successor but in a way there can never be a successor to bruce lee which 
like it's like well then like, what are we what did we spend 90 minutes doing yeah a- a- absolutely and like okay well that's clearly not what this tournament actually was like you're lying and then <laughs> you're using that lie to prop up your like like fake profundity <laughs> like, i don't know it's just a great ending to a great movie Dude, not only was I uh, kind of kind of moved slash touched, uh, I have it written down here, and I'm going to quote oh, from it please. at length. Yes. <laughs> this is so amazing. Uh, he says, quote, the garden is empty now. The fighters have gone home. The building is closed for the night. What have we discovered from all this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Tell me. What have please. we discovered? <laughs> what did we discover here? Tell right, me he's... I didn't waste the last 90 minutes. <laughs> he says, a new champion, perhaps. Which, what? Champion of what? Like, <laughs> uh, perhaps. A successor to Bruce Lee? I doubt it. You see, what most heir apparents to Bruce seem to forget is that to be the best, you must beat the best. <laughs> and so Lee, true. So and, true. <laughs> and Bruce Lee was the best, but he can no longer be beaten. So all else <laughs> is just speculation. <laughs> <laughs> like he's literally like the only way we'll know is if someone beats bruce lee but he's dead so we're never gonna know yeah um so yeah that's um i mean i i think it echoes the, the ending of citizen kane whenever uh <laughs> yeah. whenever he's like i don't think a jigsaw puzzle can tell us about a man or i don't think one word can tell us about a man's life you know you know, I actually think it's so funny. I never thought about that because I actually think that's what they were going for. I think they <laughs> thought about that scene. <laughs> yeah. Now, actually, in that in that universe, just imagine how much better this movie would have been if Orson Welles had narrated it. You know, oh, I mean, man. he, he still could have done him it. At Madison, could, you, could you imagine him at Madison Square Garden, like talking to Fred Williamson? What a what a beautiful thing that would have been, dude. I mean, that now <laughs> now I actually would have been a great movie. Like it would have been a Criterion release if we if we had that. <laughs> um, I don't know. Any final thoughts on uh, on this movie, uh, or I guess maybe Bruce Ploitation in general? Um, I, I do want to say thanks for bringing this to my attention. I didn't, I didn't know the word exploitation before, uh, you, uh, mentioned in our Twitter DMS and, uh, I'm very glad you brought this to our attention. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, if I, um, uh, if I were to give some recommendations on some like exploitation movies that people might actually enjoy. Oh um, yeah. Let's hear him. Well, like I think. Uh, Bruce Lai went on to make some movies that are actually kind of good. The best of which I think is the iron dragon strikes back, which is mm. a sort of like gritty crime movie it really has nothing to do with Bruce Lee, but also dynamo and the Chinese Stuntman are pretty good. Bruce Lai movies uh, as well. I would certainly recommend game of death Two, also known as tower of death, which is just a great, like, you know, martial arts, uh, just a great martial arts movie that has very, very little to do with Bruce Lee and what he was about. And I would also recommend a movie called The Dragon Lives Again, which the premise of it, uh, this one stars Bruce Lung. The premise is that Bruce Lee dies. He goes to purgatory and he uh, fights uh, James Bond, Clint Eastwood, uh, Dracula, uh, various other characters like that. Wait, what? Like he fights... (laughs) Yeah, he, yeah, he he fights he fights James Bond, Dracula, Zatoichi, uh, the Godfather, the Exorcist. Those are those are in the movie, and his his wait, friend, what the Exorcist? The, like who? Yeah, the, the Exorcist. Exorcist, like the priest. I guess they just call him the Exorcist. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, 
you know, the, the Clint Eastwood in the movie, like, you know, it's the man with no name, basically, but they just call him Clint Eastwood. Um, and, now, and now say the name of this one again, because this one's going to the top of the list for me. The Dragon Lives Again. The Dragon uh, Lives Again. Okay. But a, a crucial detail also is that he has a Bruce Lee has a friend in the movie, a close friend who is Popeye the Sailor. Um, so, <laughs> you know, check, check this movie out. This movie is a lot of fun. And, you know, uh, yeah, I, I really can't improve on the description of it. That's uh, I'm looking at it now. I mean, this is uh, man. I, I see your review here. It says if you were ever in a gas station or a Walmart in the mid 2000s. See, I, I lived I mean, I lived next to a Walmart and probably went there once a week in the mid 2000s. We didn't have any movies like this. We had like, oh, man. you know, without a paddle, you know, and like <laughs> um, American Pie six, you know, like uh, so, yeah, you 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 should count your lucky blessings. You had uh, you had a Walmart like this because this is awesome. We didn't have anything like this. Well, it's never too late to change your life. You know, Bruce Bloitation, <laughs> yours to discover. <laughs> All right. What do you think, John? Anything else? You got anything else for, for about Bruce Bloitation or, uh, or anything mm. else? Mainly just double down on what you said. Like, I, I'm, I didn't know really the word Bruce Bloitation. I knew about these movies and like about the everything that took over after his death and everybody was scrambling. Like I knew about all that, but I, I guess Bruce Bloitation and, and the rest of it uh, didn't really click. So yeah, thanks for bringing that to my attention as well. Cause uh, it's a blind spot. And, and also I just want to get more verse and Kung Fu in general. So uh, it's just really nice to, to kind of know this kind of thing exists. So. Yeah. We'll have to have a Kung Fu month or something where we go, we do like Kung Fu one oh one for ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it'll definitely have to be like I'm like that's why I don't talk about kung fu a lot because I don't want to sound super basic because it's like I don't really know like aside from being like yeah that fight scene was really cool it's like it's like I don't really know how to discuss it critically so yeah yeah man, man go punch you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, will right. do you well, have one, anything one to- thing one thing I would just say on that note and I hope this won't take too long is. You know, no, one of the thing, one of the things that that Bruce Lee was good at in his movies, and that I think separates a good kung fu movie from a bad one, is like he was a storyteller in his action scenes. In Way of the Dragon, in that scene where he fights Chuck Norris, um, what what is communicated in that scene is, you know, he's losing the fight for the first half until he embraces the techniques of Jeet Kune Do. Um, so he stops relying on rehearsed routines. He starts becoming more of a showman. He starts. Um, you know, doing doing unexpected things that mess with Chuck Norris's head, and then he wins the fight. Um, and that's something. Uh, the idea that a fight scene can communicate an idea is something that Bruce Lee was able to do, and that I think separates the good kung fu movies from the bad movies. Now, if you look at a lot of movies with Bruce Lee, um, you'll see a, you'll see a lot of fight scenes that are very hastily choreographed and don't communicate anything except trying to stretch the running time to 90 minutes. Um, but, but yeah, I think, I think if I were, uh, if I were to give one piece of advice in pursuing the genre, it's think about what is, what does this fight scene mean? What idea is it communicating? Uh, and is it communicating anything? Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that is, that's a, that's an interesting, just a more interesting way to look at it than just watching the fight scene. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Then man, man, go punch, man hit wall. I mean, hey, know. look, I lo- I love guys getting punched too. You know, <laughs> yeah. 
yeah there's uh there's the storytelling of the fight scene and then there's also a guy getting hit which is pretty yeah. cool so um all right well do you have anything to plug uh you want to talk about your two podcasts uh y- yeah sure well uh the important cinema club which i host with justin DeClue, is a film history podcast we try to cover the waterfront different topic on every episode you know some some corner of film history and uh, michael and us with luke savage who i believe has been on this podcast uh, mm-hmm. is a culture and politics podcast uh so yeah i'm more podcast than man Michael and us, which started as a that started as a podcast where you were going through all the like because I, I was I was going back and listening to some of the episodes and like correct me if I'm wrong but like you guys started a a podcast where you were going through the movies of Michael Moore and then Donald Trump got elected and you were like well we better keep doing this yeah I mean we we started it was a joke podcast at at the start basically like what would it be like to watch the films of michael moore in the year god 2016 right. you know because he had become a sort of like forgotten figure a little bit outmoded like you know those those movies seemed so ephemeral and it was and yet they they seemed so important in like 2004 right. so uh yeah we we were very curious about watching those and you know i don't i don't know if we watched them we didn't necessarily continue because donald trump was president i think we just kind of liked doing it and then mm. we just sort of like you know just continued on and yeah i like to think that michael moore is sort of the patron saint of the podcast more than more than anything else well i'm trying to think what what would be the equivalent of that like in like in like 10 years like somebody doing a podcast where they listen to every episode of like Chapo trap house and then yeah maybe it's it's kind of hard to imagine because it's hard to replicate the conditions under which those michael moore movies were released like that's true like before Twitter, before all that social media, where like the the twenty four hour news cycle is w- was just in a different place. Like the idea that a movie could dominate the conversation in the way that Fahrenheit nine eleven did for as long as it did that that summer. Like if that movie came out now, it would just be like it'd be it'd be a one day story if yeah. that. Uh, yeah, um, if that. I mean, I'm, yeah, I remember. I remember when it won the Palm Door. And I remember, um, you know, being in a little conservative household, you know, but I was like 16, I think, when it came out. And so, like, I could drive to Blockbuster and I got it and watched it and it was like contraband almost, you Mm -hmm. know. And it's insane to even even begin to associate Michael Moore with anything like that now, you know. Yeah. But yeah, anyways, so if you're, dear listener, if you're looking for a, a podcast that starts out dissecting every single one of Michael Moore <laughs> movies, boy, do I have a recommendation for you. So, <laughs> All right, well, we'll let you go. And uh, and yeah, thanks for introducing us to, to Bruce Bloitation. And uh, we'll have to have you back sometime to explain some other subgenre to us. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot, Will. <laughs>